Welcome to the Leading and Learning Through Safety podcast, where we discuss OSHA, EPA, safety policy, safety training, employee engagement, and everything in between. Safety is so much more than a technical skill. It's a motivational need. It's a means of engaging your team. Safety is a meaningful business practice that makes a direct impact on everyone in the organization. Hi, I'm your host for the podcast, Dr. Mark French, also known as The Safety Dude. As a certified safety professional and nationally registered EMT, I am excited to share my knowledge and passion from experience in environmental health, safety, security, and human resources. I've worked in the automotive, foods, chemical, nuclear, and e-commerce fields. I'm so glad you're joining me for this episode as we talk through the current issues in environmental health and safety and how they can affect the culture of your organization. Welcome to the podcast. Really happy you've joined me for this episode as we talk through all those things safety and health related. So again, starting off, it seems like the news is just absolutely dominating, uh, as it should be. I mean, it's a very, very important topic with COVID-19 and how we're protecting our workers. And as much as I thought that this would be more of a every once in a while topic, it, it really is taking a lot more of the resources when we look at workers' compensation, when we look at occupational safety and health administrations, local and federal it's taking a lot of resources, so it's really pulling a lot of information. So really looking at that and really surprised with how much, and I shouldn't have been surprised, to be honest, I should have really foreseen that. So kind of starting off, we'll, we'll start off with that to see what's changing, what's new, because it certainly does evolve quickly, where certainly different states are making different changes to the way they do things. And it's still a lot of where it's saying that, that OSHA is really overwhelmed with this, that there's been some news on the NPR, also on other stations that talk about how OSHA is working to protect us through COVID-19, but they're just overwhelmed. It's just a whole lot of information and a whole lot of complaints. And federal OSHA has received somewhere around 18,000 complaints, according to NPR. And this was a little bit earlier in the month of July, but still, that's a lot. That's a lot of complaints. When you think about a normal situation of OSHA when they're doing complaints, doing their standard rounds, and then also they have to protect their workers. Uh, they also have they have the right to a safe place to work, too. So where do you send them? How do you do it? And a lot of those complaints certainly can be closed through written evaluation that they can request to say, hey, we got a complaint about your COVID-19 process. What's going on? Can you send us your policy? Can you send us your procedures? Can you send us examples of what you're doing, especially for one-offs, that there's not a lot of systemic complaining about a certain company or a company that's demonstrated that it does have a desire to do the best because we are in unprecedented times. Again, and I've talked about this a little bit before, we're learning as we go. This is not something we've experienced before. This is not like your typical machine guarding issues where, yeah, we know what machine guarding should look like. We know what it should protect from. We know what a lockout tagout process is. I know what a safety data sheet looks like. But 
Have I ever had to protect a workforce from a pandemic before? No. Did I ever think I would have to? No. And so as much as we in the workforce protecting our employees, going out there and doing things and trying to find ways and creative ways to make those changes occur, as much as we're having trouble trying to figure this out, so is OSHA. They're trying to discover it and and cite it and do the best that they can to figure out what's going on and how they can enforce it and even how far they can reach to enforce it. Because certainly there will be some case law, I am sure, that will come out of this years from now that maybe they cited an employer for something and they'll take it and we'll see where it goes and how much authority OSHA has during something like this pandemic. So it's, again, interesting to see that we've, we've really overwhelmed some of the resources to how we enforce what we're doing and how we are able to protect Because when you think about it, could every case of COVID-19 that comes from a workplace or alleged workplace incident, could that be an OSHA issue? Could it be a workers' compensation issue? That's a a big number, very, very big number, unprecedented numbers. I'll use that word again. Uh, That seems to be what a lot of what we're hearing is that this is just unprecedented. We were caught surprised from the standpoint of, we knew it was a risk. We knew we need to protect people. All right, were we fast? Were we slow? That's a political debate. But at the end of the day, it was something we did not think about the full scope of how do we enforce? How do we control it with certainly the years of budget cuts against OSHA, the years where they really have not been staffed to a point where they could handle something like this. So very, very interesting. And then you flip over and you look at California and you see where Cal, the, the farmers are starting to push back on some of the COVID-19 penalties, uh, saying that they're checking their employees, they're they're doing other things, and they, they really are really kind of resisting some of the regulations that are coming up for the use of masks and things. They want to provide a safe workplace, but um, they're citing them for like gross negligence and really uh, coming out every day and documented criminal penalty. So really harsh against that. So some of the California farmers and such are pushing back a little bit on how that is enforced and how much can OSHA force on them? And you think about a lot of the heat stress policies certainly were written to protect farmers and to protect those workers that are out in the sun every day in the heat, because that's what a lot of it comes from is that stagnant air, this direct sunlight really getting hot. So would the mask affect it? Now I was doing some research last week for some unrelated items and really came across are some really interesting studies that came out of Japan in kind of the mid 2000s, like 2004 through 2008 ish, um, looking at when they were having a really bad outbreak of SARS and they were using masks and they did a lot of studies on healthy people and the effect of cloth masks versus uh, N95 versus other types of masks. So I, I encourage you to kind of do a Google search. They'll pop up. But what really came across was that for a perfectly healthy person, they did not see a change in temperature or anything significant through the use of a cloth mask. They did find some interesting like pulse ox readings and pulse readings that came from the use of an N95, which 
of course, throughout the day as that that shield would get more particles in it or moist or anything like that, it would get harder to breathe through. So that makes a little bit of sense when you see that, that that valve would have that issue and need to be changed at that point. But some very interesting research there about how the effects of heat while wearing those masks and if they affect us and how they can affect us. And they did some really nice studies on that that really looked at, okay, how much of a risk does it create? Now, again, it was on perfectly healthy people. They tested it, I mean, on healthy people because they wouldn't want to put anybody at an undue risk. So, of course, when we think about heat stress, there's so much that happens based on if we're acclimated, how healthy are we, what medications are we on. And these are things that maybe we would not necessarily know about our employees unless we just happen to know them or they disclosed it to an HR or something like that. So very tricky when we're working through that because, yeah, there maybe there are situations. And again, they look at the study from a healthy person. So again, we're, we're exploring this. We're learning as we go and, and we're trying to learn as we go. And what's another interesting article came out of Nevada where they were doing observations. Their local OSHA officials were going out and doing some observations and actually found pretty high compliance rate for the state. They were going to different businesses and just looking and watching and taking down notes and overall found a pretty good compliance rate. So it's good to hear that there's those good stories, too, of where OSHA is proactively going out. They're collecting data. They're trying to see what they can see and cover as much ground as they can. And then on the flip side, we're seeing people who are following what the rules are stated as, and they're following that guidance and kind of making it easier for them to to see that there is compliance out there in those areas that they can easily walk out and see. And so, for instance, like a grocery store, they would walk in and just start looking to see who was being compliant as they came in because that could be risk to the workers. So very interesting process there. But some good news that actually came out of that, that we see some proactivity going on to understand how is this happening and what are we going to do long term? Because we're, again, we're... We're swimming in waters that we never thought we would be in, and we're trying to find our way, and we're doing a lot of really neat things. We're doing a lot of really good things out there as a safety profession, and we don't know if it's enough yet or not. We we don't know if we're being successful. We're not sure yet. We're hopefully that as they look back and a few years from now, we can look back and really think about how did we respond to this. I think there'll be a lot of places that will be able to kind of pat themselves on the back and say, hey, we we did a lot here. We did some good work. Unfortunately, there's always going to be that other side of it where I think there's going to be some medical institutions and other places that should have been more prepared, that should have had their, especially the frontline healthcare workers. There's been guidance out there for quite some time about preparation for pandemic and how much items you should have stored and ready for your team to deploy in the case of something like this, and a lot seem to have been caught, kind of rocked back on their heels, not ready for what they found. So I think we're going to learn both ways that I think we can be better prepared in some cases. I think some places responded very quickly, very well. We're seeing some good news. We're also hearing that we're just 
really sorting it through, and I think this is something that we're going to have to continue to work through. It will be very interesting to see how it plays. Uh, certainly the OSHA page is updated with information as it changes to guidance on face masks, to how do you protect your team, to all that information. So it's something that we'll just continue to watch and we'll see how it goes because it's certainly going to be a very hot topic and a rightfully so hot topic for quite some time. More podcast after this. TSD Amalgamated, your partner in safety consulting. Find them on the web at tsdamalgamated.com. With over 15 years of experience in various industries, setting up ISO, TS, and RC systems, the professional team at TSD Amalgamated is ready to help you take your safety program to that next level. TSD Amalgamated is skilled in technical and behavioral auditing, from training employees on OSHA compliance standards to helping your leadership team see how safety can help drive real organizational change. TSD Amalgamated is there to be your partner. Their process is not a fill-in-the-blank policy or training process. They want to know your team, your needs, and create processes that create total organizational ownership. TSD Amalgamated, where do you want your safety programs to take you? www.tsdamalgamated.com Welcome back to the podcast. So as we continue on into this episode, I'm really going to move to more of the traditional way that I've done this podcast in the past. And that's really looking at some of the news that's out there for more of the traditional safety, the safety that we, we know very detailed amount about that we've done for years and years and years. And really looking at there's still those issues out there. I mean, COVID-19 is something we need to be focused on, but we cannot lose focus of protecting our teams from all the other hazards that we've traditionally had to protect them from. And there's still some companies out there that are having their issues, not not really doing everything they should be doing. The first story that I came across was out of Alabama, and it was a woodworking facility that had a fatality and very very unfortunate as any fatality should be and what happened was that a machine jammed it was a woodworking facility it jammed up they were trying to unjam it the best i can tell reading through everything i can find and a piece of wood came flying out and struck a worker killing them and that's so unfortunate because preventable from the standpoint of were they trained to turn that piece of equipment off? Did they know they should turn it off to unjam it? Was there a protocol? And to unjam something that is still building up pressure behind it, something that, okay, it's doing something with wood. It doesn't say which type of woodworking equipment. We can only think about industrial woodworking equipment and imagine this thing jamming up with pressure behind it, someone trying to unjam it using a non-standard protocol while energized and being struck. And what's so bad is this is not this company's first run-in with OSHA, that they've had other amputations, which is common for that industrial-style 
work and other issues where basically they failed to implement safeguarding that their the guarding that they asked for was not put into place and it makes one wonder and this is one of those times where you, you go to that name blame shame retrain issue where okay maybe we had a guarding issue but instead of guarding it we just retrain our people to be really safe don't don't do that don't get in the way of it rather than actually investing in anything to fix it. Now, not to say that's what happened here, but you hear that way too often, especially when I'm talking to other safety professionals that have heard or seen stories of things like that, where the common practice is to, yeah, we fixed that. Well, okay, how did you fix it? And when you really deep dive it, it was nothing more than just a a toolbox talk on don't get in the way, don't get yourself hurt. And that's insane when it comes to something as simple as machine guarding that's pretty intuitive from the standpoint of, especially for the large equipment that's been around for a long time, there are certain safeguards that should be automatically in place and available. And to look and you kind of see it's a moderately sized family-owned company and you wonder like, okay, which which person in the family got the job of safety to do that. Because I remember another story of years ago where they had uh, quite a bit of OSHA issues, just lots of more than one or more than three fatalities. And they had just randomly picked someone to be the safety person. person had no clue about safety. And so they continued to have fatalities. It was so sad. And people, That's unacceptable (laughs) in the modern world. This is not something that should be the common idea. And so very unfortunate. Of course, lockout, tagout should have been huge. Lots of willful violations as there should be for guarding, lockout, tagout, energy control should have been there. So very, very sad. And then there's a a food company, a candy company uh, out of the Midwest that was put on the severe violators list and hit with an almost half-million-dollar fine. Um, After some amputations earlier in the year, people getting caught in in valves, people getting caught in equipment, and again, lockout, tagout, just the unjamming. And I can be kind of honest when I look back and, and think that there's a lot, that there's some food industries out there that are doing a lot. They're doing a great job. And then you also think about the food industry and you think, okay, well, they're putting their safety features into their quality to make sure people don't get sick. And that's fantastic. But then they're a little bit behind. There's still some food industries that are a little bit behind on the OSHA standpoint. Like there's still people that believe that it's perfectly fine just to reach into the equipment and unjam it because we don't want that food to get gummed up in the machine and have to sanitize it. Or we don't want uh, to, to have to wait and do a cleanup because the food has sat in the machine too long as we've locked it out and unjammed it the right way. And that was always a big piece of the pressure point was, okay, it can only set for so long before it gets into a packaging or a freezer or somewhere to where it can be safely stored. That way it's safe for consumer. And we're on a timeline with that. It has to keep moving. In some cases, not necessarily this case, but this is kind of a, me speaking generalities of where I've been before. 
And very interesting to think about the idea of that timeline, and sometimes that leads to the lack of lockout tagout process. And a lot of that's evolving. A lot of it's getting better. Um, a lot of companies are, are really working on that, and a lot of companies have already done it. But in this case here, it was not in place. They were moving. They People were, and it wasn't just one. It was a couple within a little bit of time and led to a very severe penalty from OSHA to look at that. And I love the statement here that they put, that the company responded with, and it was that their commitment to an injury-free workplace. I would love to see their full OSHA log. Would love it. How many sprains and strains? How many bruises? How many cuts? I mean, if you're having amputations, if you're having, like, not just fingertip, but larger amputations too, yeah. I don't think that's an injury-free workplace. Don't think we're moving that direction there. And they're working to do all this training and education, and I like that. They really point out that the fact that they're going to do training and education. We're not going to fix it. We're going to teach our team not to stick their hand in there. Wow. That just absolutely floors me. And I'm a big believer in education. I believe in safety education. It should be something that is inherent. But if you can engineer it out, if you're supposed to engineer it out, do it. And then train them on the engineering practices. It makes it a lot simpler because you can simply say, look, we have a guard here. If it's missing, you need to call somebody. Not all the procedures for you to actually reach your hand up in a piece of equipment. That is not the way that we should be handling safety issues. So that's kind of disappointing. But then let's flip over to something good. So we'll wrap it all up with something nice here. The uh, Health and Safety Executive publication actually was doing some data research and found that even the workplace, every workplace fatality is tragic. Should not happen. We should be really focused on how we prevent that. But we are seeing a decline. We, we are seeing that as... We're having some very good years that are coming together according to what they're looking at for uh, kind of what they look at from April 19th to March 2020, that um, uh, numbers are lowering, that we're seeing fewer fatalities, which is a good sign. Of course, that number should be zero. Everyone should feel like they can go home at the end of the day safe to their family. That is something that's inherent to any work or should be inherent to any work. There's still so much that we have to do there. There's still so many variables that have to go into that. And it's not one-sided. That's a two-way street. There is a company that has to provide a lot of safety features. There's a team of people that have to choose to follow those safety procedures. And all of it has to work together has to work together in harmony and to make it work. And that's a difficult situation. That's a lot of the psychology behind safety is once you provide something, how do we use it? And how do you continually evolve it, make it better every day? And here we're seeing some maybe some good news coming from some safety work that's been going on, some safety ideas that are happening. So I think that maybe is something that will hopefully continue to improve as that should be improving as we go. 
So I want to thank you for joining me on this episode of the podcast. Really happy you joined me. We'll continue the discussion on, of course, COVID-19 will continue, but we'll continue to look at how do we look and find these safety issues? How do we evolve our cultures? How do we make sure that we are providing what we should provide and take a look at that in-depth idea of how do we continue safety? Stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to the Leading and Learning Through Safety podcast. Join the conversation on the internet at www.thesafetydude.org or on Twitter at thesafetydude. As always, all opinions are my own and not affiliated with any business entity. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. It is not a substitute for proper policy, appropriate training, or legal advice. I always encourage you to learn more about safety regulations and examine the facts with your unique perspective. This has been the Leading and Learning Through Safety Podcast. <music>